Well, good morning. Welcome back to church this year. Take your Bibles and uh, turn with me again where we left off a little before Christmas in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, if you're using your Bible app, it's E-C-C-L, and you'll find it. If you looked at the uh, title I gave this message, you'll see a word that we don't use very often, reverence. Reverence. It's really the same term as you will find at the end of our passage. We're looking at the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5. At the end of verse 7, most of our Bibles say something like this, Therefore, fear God. Fear God. Reverence. It's describing our place before God. Do we understand having reverence for God. So Ecclesiastes has uh, been really honest and raw, raw about life. How even if you're successful, like Solomon, it can be very empty and meaningless. And how tough things can be. There's oppression and, and then there's the whole depression of at the end of it all you just die. And so it could seem like a very negative book, and yet the overall message has been one that is saying to us that God redeems us from an empty life in a sinful world. Because if we live life with God and for God, He fills our life. And He makes the good things meaningful in life. But the key will be the centrality of God in our life. So the question it seems that Solomon is addressing as we open this section in chapter 5 is how do you make God that key component in your life? How do you make him central? And the central issue seems to be this issue of reverence. Do we understand our place before a holy God? Because the only way we can relate to God is if we have a proper fear or reverence. Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong, evil or sin. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. So it's talking about what we say to God. God is in heaven and you were on earth, so let your words be few. Uh, Pastor Nate jokingly said to me this morning, so when you read that verse, are you just going to stop and sit down? (laughs) Probably not. Verse 3, as a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. It is foolish irreverence to approach God flippantly without acknowledging our sin is the issue. So we come to the house of God, Solomon says. Now, he's referring to the temple because Solomon himself had built this magnificent temple probably within some 30 years of when he writes this. 
So he says, when you come, guard your steps, literally watch your feet. Uh, if you can recall Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a fire of the burning bush and says, take your sandals off your feet, the place you're standing is holy ground, understanding the presence of God. Or Exodus 19, when, when Moses went up into the mountain, it says the mountain was surrounded or, or, or completely filled with smoke and the mountain trembled. And God said to Moses, warn the people lest they get through to look and many of them perish. Do we understand the holy presence of God? So watch your feet. Watch your feet. You might tell that to your young child if you're on a hike and you're close to a cliff or something dangerous. Be really careful because there's a serious warning here of what could happen if you have a misstep. So, so how do we apply this in terms of our worship? This building is not a temple because we know that God today in our New Testament age dwells in people, not buildings, but there is a parallel because we come together here to worship and we've just sung songs of, of worship corporately. The other application would be as we would seek in our personal life to connect with God, call it your quiet time or devotional time or when you sit down to read or, or pray. How do we approach God? Be careful. Realize your place. It's a seriousness. How do you put this together with what Solomon's father David wrote in Psalm 122 when he said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Enter his presence with joy. So is that a contradiction to guard your steps with seriousness, reverence, and to come before him with joy and, and gladness? Or is it both? I think if we understand God, it's both. If you can picture yourself going into the Oval Office, let's just say a president is there that you voted for. You go into the Oval Office, are you glad to be there? Absolutely, you are in a place of privilege. Are you very serious and conscious of your behavior there? Yes, because you are in the presence of the, of the most powerful ruler in the free world. So gladness and seriousness are not contradictory. Well, God is far greater and more powerful, infinitely so, than any president or ruler or king. And only God is holy. So whatever seriousness of respect we might give to any human being, infinitely more, God is deserving of that reverence. So be careful. Go near to listen, to receive, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. The term sacrifice of fools is actually a very unusual and kind of seemingly contradictory phrase. That's why it catches our attention. Sacrifice was a good thing. Sacrifice was a religious, spiritual thing that the Levitical law said you need to bring sacrifices for sin. So how could doing something that God asked you to do, bring a sacrifice, be a foolish Thing. Well, the word fool tells us that they are coming with the wrong attitude. They are coming irreverently, and the reason is explained in the final line of verse 1. 
They don't even realize their own sin. They don't even know what they do wrong. They are not thinking of who they are approaching. When you approach a superior, you should be thinking about what's important to the superior as you approach them. And you do that naturally, just a a lighthearted one would be if you're going to a job interview with a boss that you know to be an avid Bears fan, don't come decked in your Packer gear, okay? Not going to be a good start. Or if in ancient times you were approaching a king who you heard hated fish, don't come in carrying a fish, smelling like fish. He hates fish. What does God hate? He hates sin. What does he love? He loves holiness. So when we dare to think of approaching God, we must come with a full awareness of reverence, his holiness, our sin. If if as you read verse 1, it sounds to you like God might actually rebuke some of the spiritual things we attempt to do, you're right, you get it. I was looking this week and found in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos, the words of God saying things like, I despise your sacrifices. I've had enough of your sacrifices. Another phrase, your sacrifices are burdensome to me. These are the very things God told him to do. How could God despise it? It's because their sin stunk to God. And so no amount of religious activity could change that. So do we have an awareness of ourself when we walk in our spiritual life into his presence? Or do we sometimes actually kind of, you know, I'm opening my Bible. haven't done this for a while, or now this is seven days I've opened my Bible, or now I'm coming back to church, or now I'm watching church, or, and we're kind of like there. Now I'm just kind of arrived. Now I'm kind of holy, aren't I? As if we were there to impress God rather than to be impressed by God. Jesus told a parable about this very thing, comparing irreverent to irreverent prayer. To some who trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt, he also told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, despised class. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, swindlers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all that I acquire. But the tax collector stood at a distance, unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man rather than the Pharisee went home justified or righteous before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we learn 
From the perspective of the Old Testament prophets or from the words of Jesus himself, we learn what reverence for God is about. It means we come before him with a humble sense of brokenness about our sin. So as we do something spiritual, and maybe rightly God has prompted you as the new year starts, of your spiritual need, be careful. As you approach a holy God, be careful. As you come to church to worship or you tune in or you sit down to fellowship, that we do not come with an attitude of criticism, not like those people. We do not come with an attitude of, what do I like? Is that a good song? Do I like this sermon? Do I agree with the way you know, he's preaching it. These people, what do I think of? Come to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. In verse 2, Solomon continues in this subject really of listening instead of telling God what we think. And he seems to be addressing the issue that sometimes in our prayer life we question God's sovereign wisdom. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. So it is talking about prayer, isn't it? God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Wow. If this sounds a bit like rebuke, you're catching on. Solomon has described oppression and selfish motives and greed just in the previous chapter. A lot of sin problems are unsolved. In light of that, how do we pray? Don't be quick with your mouth to question his sovereignty or tell him what to do. Don't just come before God reciting your list of how you want things to change. Don't be, be careful because you need to remember God's in heaven. And all that entails, he is the judge of all, the creator of all. And you're on earth and you are finite. So make sure you understand your place. No one likes to hear that phrase. But we have a place before God. And he is in heaven, and he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in 2020 and now in 2021. Because he is refining his church. And he is reaching people with the gospel who haven't been reached before. And he is going to apply pressure where we will grow most. Because he's still making disciples of all nations. So do we trust God with how he is managing his world? Or are we seeking to tell him what to do? Do we pray for God's will or ours? Think through a prayer. If you have a written prayer list, it's a great idea. But then just evaluate a little bit. How much are you requesting your will and how much are you seeking his will? Sometimes when we mostly pray our will, it's because we've forgotten our place. So what is God's will? You only have to go to the end of this section, verse 7, to realize the last line, 
therefore, fear God, actually mine is translated, therefore, stand in awe of God. That's his will. Or to wonder if this is really the message of Ecclesiastes, go to the last two verses of the entire book. We find this, now that all, now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. This, this is what we are responsible for. And then the next verse, for God, this is a final verse, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. And that's us, that's the neighbor we're critical of, that's the world so is the focus of our life and our prayer life specifically here to fear God? There's much that God will judge. But will we fear God? These days I, I pray that our church, the church, will be a holy lighthouse in a world that is fearful, contentious, hurting, and angry. Because if we do not have a reverence for God, we will never stand out as different in a world that needs him. So he's really saying to take God's authority seriously. God's in heaven. You're on earth. (laughs) I'm accountable as a man, as a husband, as a father, in my case, as a pastor, shepherd. And while my eternal life is already secured by God's grace, I'm at at peace with God positionally. He's covered all my sin. I rest in that grace positionally. Yet I know that I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ. And as he looks at my life, its breadth and its details, he will be seeking if I, will, if I have feared him, revered him, known my place. God's in heaven. Early in Solomon's reign, if you read the book of 1 Kings or the other version in Chronicles, he seemed to have a very clear view of God's singular sovereignty you see him with great energy desiring to build the temple for all the right reasons and you you read his dedication of the temple first kings 8 and here is a young king in humble submission before god wanting to glorify god and we cheer at who solomon is reading those chapters but if you keep reading 1 Kings 11 is a very sad chapter. Because this man who had once worshipped God so fervently as a younger adult had fallen away. Because he had done what God said not to do and he had taken many wives and in his effort to please his many wives he built them altars to their gods and then a transformation took place and he began to worship those gods as well. There we go. You've got to be kidding. Idolatry? But step by dangerous step, 
he had become distracted from the singular worship of God and something else had become more important, pleasing those wives. Whatever is most important to us, whatever distracts us from the worship of God is actually what we worship. We can fall from a heart of worship, so verse 1, listen to God. And verse 2, realize God's in heaven, you're not in charge. Verse 3, as a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. What's that about? You might recognize the dynamic of kind of losing sleep over some worrisome, busy day or future, wondering what you're going to do. And when you wake up more often, you notice your dreams more often, seems to be the dynamic. But what does he mean? What's the comparison? Well, this is one of those cases where the Bible interprets itself. Verse 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. So the point of the many dreams is that our many words of prayer become meaningless. So just as you remember, you get all those dreams, oh man, that's a crazy dream, but it really doesn't mean anything. Just like you can have many dreams that are meaningless, we can have many words in prayer that are actually meaningless to God. Matthew 6, again, Jesus says the same thing. It says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they, do, they think they will be heard because of their, what? Many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray, and that introduces what we call the Lord's Prayer, a model prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So how about reverence? To start your prayer approach, Jesus says. Instead of going on and on about what you need. Hmm. Don't just babble on about what you want. A radical thought is that sometimes we are praying too much about things that are not God's priority. We can pray too much about things that are not important to God. Do we ask over and over and over because we've not actually been listening to God, kind of like parents who hear small children asking sometimes over and over, can I have a snack? Can I have candy? Can the last couple of weeks, right? As a parent, we might just finally say, stop asking, because I don't think that's good for you. Trust me. This is what is good for you. Carrots and celery. So verse 1, are we listening rather than making a sacrifice of fools? Verse 2, are we quick to tell God what we think instead of accepting that he's in heaven and we're on earth, sovereignty? And verse 3, do we have many words in prayer that actually are becoming somewhat worthless because we are not trying to focus ourselves on what God would be saying to us? So we keep asking for things that are not his will because we are defensive or shielding ourselves from things that are his will. Be careful. So how do we go about doing that? 
Here's a start in a New Testament passage. First John 1. It's about we, so it's written believer to believer. This is how we should function before a holy God. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that's referring to his holiness, then we have fellowship with one another. Then, then the way is clear. And listen, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is verse 1, really. Don't act, offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Don't come before God and, and ignore sin. Next verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When, when the Jews came to the temple, they would bring sacrifices that had to be killed. Throats slit, blood drained, everybody caught it. Sin is so serious, it requires death. We are so wonderfully living in an age of grace where we don't do that. But the cross, the reason we took communion this morning was just this tiny token reminder that blood was just as necessary for our sin. Only it was the blood of Jesus, his son, already shed, who has completely paid for our sins. And so we are privileged to know that. But the issue is still the same. If we were to ignore our sin, it's foolish to think we're having fellowship with God. If we, if, if we have not seen ourselves clearly in 2020, like, you know what God has really shown me about me in 2020? Here's where I am falling short. This is, this is, this is something that God has unearthed in me this past year. If, if, if that is not a part of our life, then we aren't really walking in the light. And the same thing needs to happen in 2021 and 2022, no matter how normal, quote-unquote, things might ever become. We don't walk in light. What are you showing me about my, my attitude or my, my bitterness or my defensiveness? As we do that, then what does he promise? Verse 9. That's when grace flows. He's faithful. He's just. He, forg- he said, I, I paid for that sin 2,000 years ago. I forgive you. I purify you. You're cleansed. You're free. You can walk in the light. We have fellowship with one another. That's where the joy comes in the, in the relationship with God. Then we can appreciate grace, but only as we start with an attitude of right fear, reverence for God. So listen before you speak and tell him what you think and what you want him to do. Verses 4 to 6 say that not only must we be careful as we approach God, but we must be careful what we promise God. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. In other words, you don't have to. 
Do not let your mouth lead you to sin and do not protest to the temple messenger or priest. In other words, you're, you're making your vow in the Old Testament system and somebody hears you. Don't protest later, that is. My vow was a mistake, sorry. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the works of your hands? There will be discipline when you don't follow through. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God, stand in awe of God. In the Old Testament worship system, of course, there were these, uh, you were obliged to give certain sacrifices for sin. You were obligated to certain uh, tithes and gifts. This is the law, you need to do this. But beyond that, there were the vows, sacrificial vows, where you were going to do something voluntarily over and above, beyond your normal uh, giving or sacrificing. But they were seriously regulated in that if you did vow them, you had to follow through. Some of the examples are that uh, people would make a vow that they were going to give God something. For example, Jacob in, in uh, Genesis 28 vowed that he would give God a tithe of all that he had. Hannah vowed when she prayed for a son, if you give me a son, I will give him to you for the rest of his life, for Samuel 1 and 2. Sometimes vows were... Uh, Vows of gratitude for things that God had already given them. Throughout the Psalms, you see the vows of thanksgiving, the ways God had answered prayer, the way God had uh, uh, delivered them from some evil situation. Other vows were vows of promise to serve God in some way. For example, the Nazarite vow, which could be a temporary or a lifelong thing. And so we have uh, uh, Samson. Uh, Samuel in the New Testament, but Old Testament uh, condition, John the Baptist, probably a Nazarite. So it was for things that you would give God, things that you were grateful to God, things, ways that you would serve God. Sometimes vows were made foolishly, though. In the book of Judges, uh, chapter 11, Jephthah the judge vowed that when God gave him victory, he would sacrifice to him the first thing that came out to him, and it was his daughter. Read that one and wrestle with that one. Then there was the king, foolish King Saul who vowed during this battle that he and his, he says, me and my army, we will not eat until we have gotten the victory. Foolish vow. And so his, his, uh, his, his army, they all got hungry. And they were weak during the battle, and his son Jonathan had to call him on it for Samuel 14. So there's foolish vows. So that's why Deuteronomy said in the Old Testament, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. This is, this is voluntary service. Proverbs 20 Solomon himself again writing, it's a snare for a person to rashly cry, holy. In other words, this is dedicated to God. And only afterwards consider what he's vowed. Oh, I shouldn't have done that, he says. Do you ever promise God something and not follow through? It's good intention. You, uh, 
were listening to a service, a sermon, you were, you were reading the scripture, or you saw the example of what somebody else did, you read an inspirational book, and, oh, I'm going to do that. Some, some uh, change, some character issue, some apology, some way you wanted to serve God, something you were going to do. You maybe even had a little bit this idea, and the vow had that, you know, if, you, if I do this, God, then will you do this? A little bit of a manipulation to it. Now, we no longer are under the Old Testament law in that way, but God's nature didn't change. It is still lying to God to tell him you'll do something and not to do it. Now, I think what begins to, as we think about that, go, oh, man, I've had all kinds of thoughts what I should do. Is every, is every thought or idea or conviction a, a promise that I've broken to God? And if it's not, what are genuine, meaningful commitments? Well, let's, let's look at the negative. First of all, don't promise God something and back out of it. So let's think. New Year's resolutions, it's interesting this falls on this day. I suspect that when I go back to the why, even though it's COVID season, there'll be more people in the gym because it's January and we all ate too much. Um, a lot of good intentions, nothing really wrong with that, but I really want us to think a lot deeper about commitments, areas of character, steps of faith, any commitment that God genuinely puts on our heart of something that as I draw myself under his authority, begin to worship with a sense of reverence and exposure of my heart to God, that he would say, this is what I'm actually addressing in you. What, what are those things and how do we go about deciding how to make meaningful commitments to God? Let me, let me just kind of think through a, a progression. Nothing magic about this this list, but first of all, let's do pray and say, God, is this your will for me? Is this not just like a momentary flash of something I thought about during a sermon or whatever, but is this a change? Is this a step? Is this a commitment you want me to make? That's asking God, but then you, what is this whole passage is about listening to God. So how do we listen to him? We seek his word. That's how the spirit speaks, is through his word. Are, are you hearing God through the word? Because here's the thing. Whatever source or person or people that you listen to consistently shape your soul. So wherever you are getting information on some kind of a regular, like daily basis, I'm, I'm just always immersing myself in this information that is shaping your priorities shaping your soul shaping your viewpoints so to bring ourselves in reverence to god would be that i would determine that first of all i am going to be hearing from god's word that's why the dailiness of in, of immersing ourselves in the word of god not looking for what we want to see but looking for what god wants to show is so important. So, if we're going to make meaningful commitments, make sure it is a biblical mindset. And then humbly seek 
input from other godly people because frankly, we can deceive ourselves. We can be blind. And so to seek input from godly people and then to ask some, some close friends to pray for our commitment. Ideally, if you're married, your spouse. If you ask your spouse to pray, they will not be surprised that you need prayer. They'll be surprised, though, maybe that you asked for prayer. See the difference? Because in other words, they know you. They know, oh, yeah, that would be a good thing. But they would be surprised maybe that you asked for prayer. And then start and keep your commitment. That's the, that's the tough part, right? How do you do that? Only the Spirit can give you the power to do that. Willpower won't do. The Spirit's the only one that has the power to, to bring about true change. Review the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How many of those are you really good at? And if you are, be careful about that because it's not the Spirit then. Because the, the flesh really produces the opposite of those things. So are you experiencing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control? And prayerfully depend on him for these changes. And then as he produces them, he gets the credit. Praise God for how he works in you. These are important commitments. These are You, you won't find yourself bragging about how you serve God. You won't be bragging about your self-control because it was God's spirit who produced it. That's, that's what happens when we revere God. These kind of transformations take place. The final phrase then, verse 7, after clarifying the dreaming and the words being meaningless, the final phrase is, therefore, you must fear God. Uh, most translations have fear God, and probably the best. Uh, mine says stand in awe of God. It's this, it's this word, reverence. Really, literally, but you must fear God. Bottom line, you must fear God. So taking us back to the, to the starting point, guard your steps. Or let's review the last words of the Ecclesiastes again. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I don't know if any of my words in commenting on this passage have spoken to you. But what does fear God mean to you? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you it would mean to know your place before a holy God? Don't ignore it. Uh, think of what maybe distracts you from it. Uh, what have you neglected? What must you pursue? To be in alignment in, in proper reverence because then you will experience the joy of being in the presence 
Because as we are in this process of sanctification, submitting ourselves to God, walking in the light, letting him expose what's going on in our hearts, we have fellowship with one another. And with David, we would say, I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Let's fellowship. Let's enjoy his presence. But only as we are in alignment, in reverence before him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, in so many ways, are humbled by the circumstances of life, whether it's something unique to this year or just something you're uniquely doing in our life. I pray we not waste any of the intentionality that you have in our life by your Spirit. We would find ourselves more understanding of your place and thus ours before you. We do stand in awe of you. We cannot even fathom your glory, the might of being in your presence, the blaze, the power, the will, the wisdom, the control you have. But, oh God, I pray that we would seek to know that better because then we will find wisdom for our own steps. In Jesus' name, amen.